0: let's try that again. Good morning. There it is. There it is. Well, it is certainly my privilege to be with you this morning to be able to share a message, hopefully from the Lord and not just from me. Uh, My name is Jason Tannery, like Frank said, and my family and I are newer members here at Kings Baptist. Uh, We've only been here for about a year now, but during that time, we've been blessed tremendously. Uh, This probably goes without saying, but I just want to let you know you have an absolutely fantastic staff here. Uh, our family is so grateful to the Lord for leading us here, and uh, we are blessed to be here. Speaking of my family, I am blessed with an incredible wife and two boys. I think we have a glamour shot here somewhere. Uh, her name is Martina, and my two boys are Jonah, and then to the far left there is Isaac. Jonah is 11, and Isaac is 8. And looking at this picture, I, uh, I know what you're thinking. You're like, she's a 10, and he's like a 4 or a 5. How, how did he pull that off? Well, young men in the room this morning, y'all listen to me, okay? That is the power of Jesus right there, okay? If you put your faith in God, he will bless you. He will raise you up from a 4 to an 8 in the eyes of a beautiful woman. Now, I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure how that theology works out for the ladies in the room. Uh, I mean, if we're honest, it sounds like you might get stuck with a 4, but <laughs> I see some married women back in the back nodding their heads. Mm-hmm. But I do know that the Bible speaks about suffering and sacrifice and humility. So uh, who am I to question his ways? But that is our little family, uh, me being the middle bald man in the picture. But believe it or not, there was a time long, long ago now when I was not the middle-aged bald man that stands before you today. In fact, if you could somehow rewind the clock, say... 10 or 15 years, you'd probably be surprised to see that I had a full head of gorgeous flowing locks and a, and a beard that was free from the grays and the silvers that are so prominent now. And if you could rewind the clock a little bit further, say another 10 years from there, you'd probably be surprised to see that I was once a young man finishing up college whose abs looked a little bit more like a washboard and less like a wash basin. And if you could go back even further, let's rewind the clock a little bit further from there, say another 10 or 15 years. The years are really adding up here. You'd see that once upon a time, I was a little boy who, like most children, was scared of the dark. Scared of the dark. True story. And like happens with most children who are afraid of the dark, bedtime became a particularly stressful affair Uh, for both me and my parents. And it included some tactics that you families with young children might be familiar with. Like slow snacking. Slow snacking. You know what I'm talking about, right? Your child has one scoop of ice cream and they manage to make it last 35, 40 minutes and then they ask for more. Uh Or how about this? Pre-dentist visit brushing. All of a sudden your child is concerned about gingivitis and they thoroughly brush Floss and fluoride like there's no tomorrow, like they're on their way to a a dental checkup. And then, of course, there's the nighttime number twos, the nighttime number twos. You just put them in bed. You flop down into the couch exhausted, start to talk with your spouse. And then that little head peeks around the corner and they're like, got to go potty. (laughs) And you just know it's going to be a while. The the end of your night has not happened yet. Now, if we're honest, most of us grownups in the room, have employed some of those tactics back when we were kids, right? And we did so for good reason. Because there were ghosts, monsters, and other scary things that came to life in the dark in our room at nighttime. Particular areas of concern for me were the closet. Closet door had to be closed. Can't leave that closet door open. And under the bed. Now there's not a chance in the world of me climbing under a bed in the, in the dark, right, as a little kid, but It was really more of a perimeter of floor space around the bed, say three feet or so, within which something under the bed might be able to grab my leg if I put my foot down. And so my trips to and from uh, the nighttime number two involved standing up on the bed, getting a running leap, and then landing outside what I like to call the grab zone, okay? And and you get this, right? This is tracking because each one of us, even if we're a big, big bald guy, at some point we're probably scared of the dark. Now, I can't remember uh, exactly how long this phase lasted, and, but eventually there came a point in a time when I wasn't afraid of the dark anymore. Maybe it was getting older or tougher or just becoming a teenager, but eventually I came to the conclusion that ghosts weren't real and the only things that I had to fear were in the physical world around me. Imagine my surprise, though, when I picked up a Bible and read otherwise. This morning's message is titled Ghost, somewhat appropriate, hopefully considering today's date, and we're going to be exploring the characteristics of a supernatural being that dwells both inside and outside of the dimension that we inhabit. These days, we like to call him the Holy Spirit, but up until about 60 years ago, uh, he was commonly referred to as the Holy Ghost. Any of you who grew up in a church that used the King James Version, you know what I'm talking about, Holy Ghost. Now the word ghost sounds a little bit strange to us in the modern age because it's kind of like the Hollywood age now. So ghost doesn't seem like it really fits so well. But it made a lot of sense to many of the believers who came before us because a ghost can hypothetically move between dimensions, manifest in different forms, and even take up residence inside of a person. And so translators often used the word ghost in instances when the Holy Spirit had ghost-like Characteristics. And they used the word Spirit in instances where there were outpourings or gifts of the Spirit taking place. And while the Holy Spirit is typically associated with the New Testament church, Pentecost in particular, this ghost has existed alongside the Father and the Son since the beginning of time. Check out Genesis chapter 1 2, the second verse of the Bible, which tells us Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now we're going to highlight Spirit of God for just a minute here and kind of dig in there. The Hebrew word used here is not Yahweh, God's personal name that that Frank touched on last week, and it's not Yeshua, Jesus' Hebrew name. This is the word Ruach, Ruach. Say that with me, Ruach. You kind of have to clear your throat at the end of it. It's a good old Hebrew word there. Ruach translates literally as wind or breath. In fact, it's the same word that's used when God breathes, when he ruachs life into Adam. And this ruach appears over and over throughout the Old Testament. It enables Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. It empowers a guy named Bezalel with with skills of artistic genius as he decorates the tabernacle. It possesses Samson as he wreaks havoc on the Philistines. And it speaks through the prophets as they proclaim God's blessings, warnings, and judgments. The word ghost is kind of making a little bit more sense now, isn't it? So this ruach, or ghost, is very much present throughout the history of, of God's people that's contained in the Old Testament, but it interacts in a slightly different manner than we're accustomed to thinking of it in New Testament times. If you comb through the Old Testament and read all the accounts of the Ruach, it, it certainly appears like it previous, previously acted, that the Spirit of God previously acted like the finger of God, kind of like reaching down, you picture the Michelangelo painting, reaching down into humanity and the will of God being worked out that way. The Spirit would fall upon certain men at various times and in diverse manners, as the writer of Hebrews says. It would equip them for some special purpose, and then it would pass away from them and move on. The description is far more like a temporary godly possession than it is an indwelling. But then everything changed. The passage we'll be studying this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 14. And it's the precise point at which Jesus reveals this coming change in the manner that Ruach interacts with humans. Now, we'll be looking at verses 15 through 29, but whenever you study the Word of God, context is everything. Those 15 verses we'll look at this morning cannot and will not give you the complete picture of what's going on in this passage. We need context, context. And that really requires reading like three chapters, and we don't have three hours this morning. So for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize and bring you up to speed on what's going on here. Judas Iscariot has just stormed out of the upper room. It's that night. Judas Iscariot has just stormed out, and the disciples are sitting there kind of bewildered. They don't know what just took place with the whole dipping of the bread and Judas abruptly leaving. And and they're even more shocked as Jesus breaks the news that he's going to be leaving. You can imagine how these disciples must have felt when their rabbi tells them that he's leaving. They're like, dude, you're our rabbi. You can't leave us. Like, you're our mentor. You're our our teacher. You're our employer. And now you're telling us that you're going to leave? And so Jesus responds in typical Jesus fashion. He tells them that they can't go to this place where he's going, but that he's going to prepare a place for them, and that one day he'll come back to get them, but that they already know the way to this place where he's going. I mean, you kind of have to have a heart for the disciples, right? If we had a mentor or a leader who always spoke in riddles and metaphors, we'd probably get a little bit fed up with the guy. So as the disciples sit there in the upper room during the Passover week, there's a deep sentiment of confusion and frustration that their mentor, their teacher, their employer is going to be leaving them. And it's in this context that Jesus reveals this change, this unforeseen change in the way that the Ruach interacts with humans. We'll pick up the story, John chapter 14, starting at verse 15, where Jesus says to his disciples, If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come back for you. So let's explore a couple of phrases in that passage. Starting with spirit of truth. Spirit of truth. Here's our ruach again. Though in The Greek, he appears as the word pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. Pneuma might be a familiar word to you, or at least some conjugations of pneuma, uh, because if you were to stop by Home Depot after church this morning, they have a large selection of pneumatic tools, tools that are powered by air, compressed air or wind, okay? But Jesus introduces a new descriptor when he's talking about this spirit. Let's highlight the word counselor, counselor. Now, if you're anything like me, you hear the word counselor and you probably think about Richard Dreyfus from the movie What About Bob? You know, you, you go to him, you lay on a couch and talk and and he sits there with a legal pad and takes notes and then tries to sell you a copy of his book, Baby Steps. OK, that's the kind of counselor that comes to mind. However, that's not the type of counselor that Jesus is speaking about. This counselor is called Paracletos. Paracletos in the Greek. It speaks of someone who defends you in a court. Of law a legal defender if you've ever been in court you may have heard the judge refer to the defense lawyer as counsel and that's what's going on here this is the type of counselor that we're talking about but in a twist jesus says that this counselor lives with you and will be in you will be in you now this is huge okay this is easy to like gloss over and just kind of miss. But this is like a total transition, a total change in the way that God interacts with man. And it's proof that, that sometimes in the Bible, the biggest changes are hiding right there in the plain text. So no longer will the Holy Spirit act as an agent that falls on certain men and then passes away from them. But now the Spirit will come and live in everyone who is a believer. Everyone around the world who knows and loves and worships Jesus will now have the presence of God inside of them in this spirit. Jesus is essentially saying, I've got to go, but I'm going to leave with you a new rabbi, and this rabbi is going to teach you the things that you need to know, and he's going to help you during this time. Now, to the disciples, and to us, if we're honest, right? This probably sounds like a little bit of a consolation prize, Because if we were given the choice, would you rather have a spirit or would you rather have Jesus in the flesh? Most of us would choose Jesus in the flesh, right? What what could possibly be better than seeing Jesus live out his life right next to you and watching how God would deal with different situations? But there are actually a couple of fundamental advantages to having the spirit's presence instead of Jesus in the flesh. Number one, the spirit is continually with us. The Spirit is continually present. Every waking or sleeping hour, the Spirit is present in our body, His temple. Unlike Jesus, you never have to wait for Him to finish healing a group of people. You never have to wait for Him to come back down from the mountainside where He's been praying and having His quiet time. This Spirit is always there, always available because He's living in us. And what exactly is He doing in us? Teaching us all things, John 14 testifying about jesus john 15 guiding us into all truth john 16 giving us power acts 1 manifesting in gifts first corinthians 12 strengthening us in times of temptation galatians 5 and the list goes on and on and the beauty of this is that it's not just the disciples who are called and selected to walk alongside jesus that get to experience god's presence But now every believer, every single Christian on earth is experiencing the presence of God at the same time. How incredible is that? Huge advantage to Jesus in the flesh. And advantage number two, we still get Jesus. We still get Jesus. The Bible tells us that he is ours and that we are his. And that even though he's not with us right in front of us, that he's preparing a place for us and interceding with the Father on our behalf now to get the full picture of what this means you have to put it in context of the traditional jewish marriage process okay almost all of the new testament big huge symbolism there going on with marriage and the whole marriage process and how we are the bride of christ and so check this out in biblical times when a handsome young jewish man saw the girl of his dreams well i say handsome. But let's be honest, he was probably a four or five, and, you know, God was building him up there. But when a handsome young Jewish man was walking through the market, and he saw the beautiful girl of his dreams standing next to the falafel stand, he would get a little bit pumped, right? He's like, oh, who is that? Maybe he talks to her for a little while. But at some point, he realizes, this is the one. This is the one that I want to marry. She's a perfect ten. And so he would hike up his tunic, he would run home, and he would tell his Father! Father! Father, I have seen the woman of my dreams. Will you please, please get her for me? And the father would, would go and visit the girl's family, if he didn't already know them, and he would explore whether or not this was a good marriage for his son. If the father said it was okay to move forward, the son would spray on his, his best Jewish cologne, and he would head over to this girl's house, and he would propose, and he would pay a purchase price for her hand in marriage. But then the son would return home alone, and he would begin to build a house. He would begin to prepare a place for he and his beautiful bride-to-be to to live in and to start a family one day. As you can imagine, though, when the young man's friends, like young men all throughout history, found out that their buddy was engaged, what did they do? They would come running over to his house— Big group of boys piling in and they'd be like, dude, you're engaged. What's this girl like? Tell us about her. Does she look good? Is she a 10? Uh, does she cook? Because it's important if she's a good cook. She's got to make the good challah bread because uh, if she doesn't make the good challah bread, there's always, you know, Lindsay over there on the other block or, or Esther over here, you know. And, and, th- and he would come to her defense. He would defend her and he would say, oh, this girl is perfect. Wait until you see her all dressed up on her wedding day. He's interceding for her. Just wait until you see how happy we will be together. She was worth every penny that I paid for her. So just like a bride, just like a bride who's engaged and knows that her man is coming to get her, Jesus is promising these disciples that they will not only get the Spirit, but they will still have Jesus while he's off doing The things that bridegrooms do. Preparing a place and interceding on our behalf. Let's pick up the story in verse 21. Jesus continues speaking to the disciples. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father. And I too will love them and show myself to them. Again, think of our our engaged Jewish couple. When the father of the groom sees that his son is cherished and treasured by this future bride, she's welcomed into the family with open arms, and the marriage can proceed. Verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the advocate, here's our parakletos again, the Holy Spirit, Numa, or in Hebrew, Ruach, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. So here it is. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that this ghost will teach the disciples everything that they need to know, and will remind them of the things that he's said. Now let me give you an example of how this played out in the first century church. Okay, we have the Gospels. In your Bible, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four books that tell the story of Jesus' life and ministry. Okay, those four books were written by four different men, and they recount Jesus' actions, words, and travels in such specific detail and with such amazing consistency that many unbelieving scholars are forced to conclude that they must have gotten together and written it together and then sent them in different ways. I don't blame them, I mean, really, because if you think about it, if you had, if you had four people write a book about you, you'd probably get four different stories, wouldn't you? Four different takes, four different versions, four different conclusions, four different stories of what really happened but this was what Jesus had promised, that, that they would be reminded of everything that he had said, enabling the New Testament to be written and added to the Holy Scriptures. And not just reminding them of his words, but also teaching them what those words meant. You might remember that, that event back in John chapter 2 when Jesus is standing before an angry mob of Jews and they're next to the temple and he says, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. But look at how verse 21 and 22 of John 2 explain that. But the temple Jesus was speaking of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. See, that's the spirit enabling them to understand things that they couldn't understand previously. Now those same things, those same promises are true in our lives today. If you are a believer, if you are a believer, you will and may understand things that unbelieving people do not. You will see the world through a different lens. You will have a different worldview than the world does around you. Think about this. Have you ever been struggling with a decision and all of a sudden, boom? Maybe it's something that a preacher said, maybe it's a song on the radio, a worship song, maybe it's a Bible verse, but all of a sudden, boom, you just know what you're supposed to do. You know what the right thing is to do. That's the spirit at work. Or maybe you're, you're doing your devotions in the morning, you're re- reading the Bible, and you read some of Jesus' words or some of the words in the Bible, and you, you think, oh man, I finally get that. It just clicks. Something that you've, you've heard a thousand times before. That is the spirit working in our lives. And the Bible describes dozens of different ways That the Spirit enlightens us and works in our lives and helps equip us for ministry. But the question that we have to ask ourselves, the part that's on us, is are we receptive? Are we receptive? Now, before I go any further, I want to just pause and say that just because I'm standing two feet up and holding a microphone in my hand does not mean that I'm somehow different Or enlightened than any of you. In fact, I sit among you right over there in that section there. And I I sit and kneel with you at the foot of the cross. So if I say some hard things in the next few minutes. Or some things that step on your toes or challenge you. Trust me when I say that I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to anyone else. Scripture clearly teaches that there's a spirit. And Scripture clearly teaches that that Spirit resides in all of believers. But if we're honest this morning, it doesn't always look like we're being led by the Spirit, does it? It doesn't. And it's my guess that every reason we could possibly come up with for why that is the case ultimately breaks down into two categories. Can't and won't. Can't and won't for reasons why we can't hear the Spirit's voice. It probably sounds strange, but there are times when we can't hear God's Spirit. And how is this possible? Well, because the noise in the world around us is loud enough that it drowns it out. It makes it hard to hear, right? We're flesh and blood. We live everyday lives as humans, and there are work, there's work, there are Kids, there's family, responsibilities. There are there's grass that needs mowing, dishes that need doing, floors that need cleaning, all kinds of stuff going on that distract us. Technology, technology, I mean, I don't know if you've considered the impact that technology has on our ability to focus, but if you do it, it's overwhelming. I'm convinced that that we are the most distracted generation in all of history. There are screens around us, 24-7, blaring, clamoring for our attention, text messages, emails, social media notifications, streaming television, advertisements. I mean, you can't even stop and pump gas at the gas pump without a screen in the pump telling you what you need to buy to make your life better. If you just buy this, you will have your best life. This is what you need. I'm just pumping gas here. Do I, really need, do I really need a commercial right now? Now, those distractions are all passive, right? They're, they're just challenges that we face when we live in this modern world. But there are also times when the noise around us, the noise that drowns out the Spirit, is produced actively. The result of sin. Ephesians 4 gives a list of things that quench or drown out the Spirit. And it lists everything from lying to anger, to various forms of sexual immorality. Engaging in those things apparently creates a suppression of God's voice in our lives. It makes it difficult to hear the Holy Spirit. But then other times, hearing the Spirit's voice has a lot less to do with can't and a lot more to do with won't. If we're honest this morning, there are probably times when we don't want to hear what the Spirit has to say, right? Right? For the same reason that we don't ever want to hear from somebody who has our best interest in mind. The only time we don't want to hear from someone who has our best interest in mind is when they're going to tell us something we don't want to hear. When the truth is going to hurt. Repair that relationship. Admit you're wrong. Apologize. Don't look at that. Admit you need help. Spend more time with your family. Spend more time with me. See, just because the Lord has our best interests in mind doesn't mean that we always do. Let me say that again. Just because the Lord has our best interests in mind doesn't mean that we always do. It's not fun to say that we're sorry. It's not fun to apologize to ask for help, to admit that we have a problem, to admit that we're broken and allow ourselves to be humbled. Those aren't comfortable things. But if we want to witness the fullness of the Holy Spirit's power, we have to be willing to listen to his voice and to follow his leading. And when we do, oh, (laughs) the outcome is incredible, world-changing. Think about Moses. Did Moses want to go to Pharaoh? And tell him to let his people go? Let God's people go? No. Did Abraham want to take his son and place him on an altar? No. Did Jesus want to be beaten? And humiliated? And nailed to a cross and die? No. In fact, remember he prayed, Lord, if you can, if it's your will, please take this cup from me. But look at the outcome of a faithful, Spirit-led life. Look at the outcome of those situations when, when someone was willing to listen to God's voice and to follow His lead. But before we can ever hope to see moves of God like those, we have to create an environment in our lives that's conducive to hearing the Spirit. We have to ask ourselves, are there things in my life that are keeping me from hearing God's voice and keeping me from knowing what his path is in my daily life? We have to ask ourselves, what am I watching? What am I looking at? What am I listening to? What am I engaging in? What, what activities do I spend my free time participating in? What am I fantasizing about? What's my thought life like? We have to ask those questions if we can ever hope to see the move of God and create a conducive environment for the Spirit. And as heirs of salvation, the bride of Christ, who have been purchased at such a great cost, why wouldn't we want to hear from our groom? Why wouldn't we want to hear from the one that loves us, that gave his life for us? Because what he's going to say is honestly the... the, the thing that every human wants to hear, that we're loved, that we're precious, that we're beautiful, that we're worth dying for, that we're His, and that He is ours. As Matt comes forward to lead us in a time of response, this time at the end of a sermon each week is an opportunity to evaluate our lives, to let the Spirit work, to consider how we might be hindering the voice of the Holy Spirit in our daily life and how we might fix that. But it's also a time to recognize the great privilege that it is to be the bride of Christ, to be worthy of someone dying for us, to be worthy of the punishment that Jesus took, to know that we're loved and to be encouraged to live as one who's promised in marriage for a great wedding ceremony that will take place when Jesus returns again. I'd like to encourage you this morning as we sing uh, the song Blessed Assurance that this is your time to speak and listen to God. This is your time to open up your heart to Him. He might bring something to mind. The Spirit might bring something to mind immediately, something that you need to take care of. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it has to do with your relationship with the God. He might bring something to mind. If he does, I'd challenge you to follow up and follow through on that and to watch how the Lord blesses that leading. Let the Spirit speak to you.